So when you see her, wish her a happy birthday before you leave. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you once again for this beautiful day. We thank you for what has transpired already in our service, welcoming three new members into our membership. We thank you for your faithfulness towards us, towards our church, for continuing to grow us, for continuing to use us uh, as your instruments in this community uh, to be your light uh, to not only this neighborhood, uh, but the greater community. I thank you for all those who make up the body of Christ, especially those who make up this local body of Christ. I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for uh, their sacrifice and for always wanting to please you, uh, always wanting to serve you, always want to further your kingdom. It is a tremendous blessing and a tremendous treasure to pastor a church such as this. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is living and active. It is in and of itself power. It doesn't matter what passage you read, it is power. It will empower you. It will change you. It will make you a different person. It will make you into the person that you want us to be. It will give us the strength that we need to face each situation. We thank you for everything that is in your word. We thank you for who you are. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In a New York Times article published only a year ago, it was reported that a married couple had gotten away with, for at least three years, scamming people with fake coupons. Now, to get away with this for even at least three years took perfecting computer designs and making these coupons look so convincing, prosecutors said that this was one of the largest fraud schemes of its kind ever. Lori Ann Talens would design incredibly real-looking coupons referred to as Frankenstein coupons by investigators because she would mix and match images, text, and barcodes from manufacturers, and then she would send messages to coupon enthusiast social media groups. These coupons would contain offers that claimed free products or greatly reduced prices on products and talons would sell them to those who were interested. Apparently, they were so real looking that when these coupon enthusiasts would present them to retailers, they unknowingly scammed retail and manufacturing companies out of $31 million. And the talons made who knows how much money selling these coupons for at least three years. But finally, their crimes caught up with them when one certain coupon enthusiast reported the couple to a fraud prevention organization who bought coupons from the couple and confirmed they were counterfeits. Ms. Talons was sentenced to 12 years in prison for a felony crime, and Mr. Talons was sentenced to seven years for his part in the scheme. So I mentioned that last part in case any of you got tempted about trying to make it big with this. In this opening story, the challenge to the seemingly authentic revealed its existence as a fake. But in our passage this morning, the challenge to the seemingly fake revealed its existence as actually authentic. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we spent an entire message on just one verse, John 8, 12. 
in direct connection with the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, we saw all the significance of Jesus referring to himself as the light of life and the light of the world in the temple complex, surrounded by giant lit menorahs that represented the manifestation of the presence of God in the pillar of fire 1,500 years before that. Taken with all the rest of scripture and what it says about what light represents, we dug out all that Jesus was saying about himself with those two statements. I am the light of life and I am the light of the world. Similarly, in this morning's passage, there's a lot in here that needs to be dug out and will be rewarded again with some deep theological revelation about Jesus as God. In fact, taken in combination with verse 12, the whole rest of chapter 8, you can look at it. If you've got a red letter Bible, the whole rest of chapter 8 is nothing but red letters. The whole rest of chapter 8 is theological revelation given up, up from Jesus about his deity. So anyone who makes the claim that Jesus never himself claimed to be God has not actually studied their Bibles or studied them well anyway. The ironic observation about this morning's section kicking off this revelation about who Jesus is as God is that it once again comes as a response to the Pharisees challenging Jesus' authority and Jesus' authenticity. Jesus is in the temple, again, on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, making the statements that he is the light of life and the light of the world. And here is the response by the Pharisees also there. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 13. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 8, verse 13. Or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 8, verse 13. This is the Pharisees' response to him saying that he is the light of the world and the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And what the Pharisees are getting at here is that the Jewish law required two or more witnesses to establish facts in capital cases. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, rabbinical tradition did not honor self-testimony. So this is probably what the Pharisees are referencing. The Pharisees are rejecting Jesus' statements about himself in verse 12 as true, since they claim he's giving himself as the only witness to his claims. What they're referencing is not part of the Jewish law, but since when did the Pharisees only enforce rules that were technically part of the Jewish law, right? And this isn't the first time the Pharisees have challenged Jesus' evidence for his authenticity. Back in chapter 5, the religious leaders challenged Jesus for healing the man who couldn't walk for 40 years on the Sabbath and claiming God the Father as his Father who gave him the authority to do what he was doing. In his response, Jesus gave them not one, not two, but four witnesses to his deity and messiahship. If we stop and think about it, though, we might remember that everything that that last recorded conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders about the witnesses to his authenticity was well over a year before what we're talking about this morning. That last conversation happened well over a year 
before what we're talking about this morning. If you remember, if you line up the four Gospels and the events that happen in each of them, what you will discover is that an entire year passed between John 5 and John 6. The end of John 5 and the beginning of John 6. An entire year passed in between those chapters. And then it's been another six to seven years after that point, the beginning of chapter 6, that we come to this Feast of Tabernacles. So if you add it all up, it's been about one and a half years since the last time the Pharisees challenged Jesus on this. I don't agree with the Pharisees. I'm not excusing them for this. Once again, bringing up this exact same challenge to Jesus. But I understand how they might have forgotten the last time they did it. How many of you remember what you had for breakfast this morning? (laughs) Jesus certainly didn't forget, though. He knows he has already brought up more than enough witnesses to his deity and messiahship. So he responds to the Pharisees in a different way than he did before. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Firstly, Jesus says, I've already had an answer to this challenge. But even if I was providing self-testimony about myself, that's still good enough. First of all, it was good enough because the Pharisees weren't even presenting an accurate challenge, but one they had just made up themselves. But secondly, it was good enough because of who he was. And here's why. As one biblical scholar noted, Jesus had access to information that no one else on earth had. And so he could speak truthfully according to that information. Jesus references that truth in verse 14. He is the only one who has ever existed who came from heaven as God to earth in human flesh and will be going back to heaven shortly after this conversation in a glorified, resurrected body. As such, Jesus had access to heavenly information, information taken directly from a Trinitarian and perfect relationship to God the Father. Only Jesus knew his true origin. The Pharisees had no clue about any of this information and therefore had no right to claim that what Jesus said about himself was not authentic. The Pharisees believed themselves to be the religious authority over Jesus, when in reality, Jesus was the religious authority over them. The entire way they saw the world, saw faith in God, saw Jesus, and saw really everything was completely wrong. Jesus was the only one who had and knew and vocalized the truth. As such, Jesus could make any statement about himself that he wished, and the Pharisees or anyone else had no authority to call it inauthentic or false. Furthermore, Jesus says next in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. All that the Pharisees as humans could do was judge any person situation, or worldview by limited, finite human 
standards. That's all they could do. To say they as humans lacked the information to judge anything or anyone the way Jesus would with his eternal knowledge and understanding would be the understatement of the history of the universe. And yet there are humans today who believe and make the same audacious claims about themselves and the surrounding universe. In their finite and limited understanding of the universe, they claim there's enough evidence to support that God doesn't even exist. In their finite and limited understanding of God, they believe and claim that God's word is no longer relevant to humanity, that parts of it can be flat out rejected or relegated to legend, that parts of it can be manipulated to say something it was never intended to say, and that parts of it no longer bear any connection to this current society and culture. They view themselves as exactly the way the Pharisees viewed themselves. That in their finite and limited human understanding of the universe, world, God, and his word, they have the authority over what to do with any of that information, when in reality, they have nowhere near God's eternal knowledge and understanding and how he's chosen to reveal what little he's chosen to reveal. What is required with that finite and limited way of thinking is not a paradigm shift. What is required is a complete opposite transformation. That human way of thinking starts with humanity. And everything else, including what to do with faith in God, stems from that. That needs to be completely transformed to a way of thinking that starts with God his eternal knowledge and his authority and everything having to do with humanity stemming from that. And God's word is crystal clear about that, about that time and time again. Shifting gears a little bit, when, God's, when Jesus says in verse 15 that he's not judging anyone, this is a very interesting statement that he makes. And here's why. Jesus has already told the Pharisee Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, we know this verse, that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have ever, e e eternal life. And then he goes on to say, For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what Jesus is saying in verse 15 of this morning's passage is simply backing up what he already told Nicodemus. Jesus was sent by God the Father and God the Father's will to earth, not to judge and condemn the world for its sin, but to save it through his death and resurrection. The crucial difference between who will be judged and condemned to hell and who won't be is incredibly simple. You either believe in Jesus and that he died and rose as a substitute for your sin, thereby repenting of it, or you don't. It's as simple as that. If you don't, 
You don't need to wait until judgment day to find out if you'll be judged and condemned to hell. You've already judged and condemned yourself. God has already made the decision on whether or not you'll be judged and condemned, and you simply have lived it out and confirmed it. That's why Jesus says, I'm not judging anyone. Now, Jesus has already said in John 5, the other time the religious leaders challenged his authenticity and authority, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now what's going on here? Why does this look like a blatant contradiction to what Jesus has already said, that he's not judging anyone? It all connects to what we already looked at in John 3, 16 through 18. In Romans 8, 29 through 30, we also read, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And one chapter later, we read, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. All right, let's put this all together. Everybody's still with me so far, right? Okay. These are all references to the same process. These are all references to the same process, but different aspects of the same process. And this is what I mean. God the Father is the one with the plan. He's the man with the plan. The Father is the one from the Trinity who designed his plan. His plan includes the entrance of sin into the world, the effects of that sin on the rest of humankind, all those he, all those he has decided will continue in their sin into eternal condemnation, and all those he has decided he will have mercy on. That's all in his predetermined plan. God the Son, in submission to the Father's will, was the vehicle by way this mercy could be given through his death and resurrection. But the two work together in the working out of this plan. And that's part of what Jesus is getting at both in John 5 and in John 8 this morning. In both passages, humans challenge Jesus' deity, authenticity, and authority, and in both passages, Jesus gives revelation about the relationship he and God the Father have with each other. And in both passages, the judgment of humans instead is brought up. God the Father's plan is the ultimate power that's guiding everything in the universe including the salvation of individual humans. Keep that in mind throughout this explanation. God the Father's plan is the ultimate power that's guiding everything in the universe, including the salvation of individual humans. 
As Jesus says in John 3, he came into the world not to unilaterally condemn it, but to provide the foundation through his death and resurrection for those the Father's plan had already determined to receive his mercy and those who wouldn't. Those who don't repent of their sins and take Jesus personally as their Savior from that sin and the king over the rest of their lives just confirm their predetermined condemnation. So when Jesus is the judge over souls at the end of time, which is referenced in John 5, all he's doing is acting according to what the Father's plan has already determined. In that way, Jesus is both the judge, but also not judging anyone himself, as he says in John 8, as noted by one biblical scholar, since, again, all he's doing is acting according to what the Father had already predetermined. All right, is everybody still with me? Okay, I told you we would be doing some digging today. Jesus' focus is on the unique and indescribably inextricable and intertwined connection to and relationship with the Father. This is why Jesus says what he says next in verse 16. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. See, this goes perfectly hand in hand with what we just explained. Jesus' kingship, Jesus' judgeship, while being given the authority as such by the Father, is only acting out the Father's predetermined plan. So even if he were to judge anything, as he says here in verse 16, he still wouldn't be judging anything by his own understanding, but by what God the Father had already planned out. And because of that, his judgment, no matter what it is, is still true. As if that wasn't enough evidence to his authenticity and authority, Jesus, and I see this as an act of grace on his part, uses a human illustration that the Pharisees might begin to understand as another answer. Verse 17, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. Here, Jesus is catering to the Pharisees' misunderstanding of religious law in order to lead them to the truth. Notice how Jesus phrases what he says. He doesn't say, according to the law, does he? No, he says, even in your law, referencing their misunderstanding of what the Jewish law actually said. The closest the Pharisees had and their misunderstanding, according to one biblical scholar, was Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not rise up against a person regarding any wrongdoing or any sin that he commits. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. But what's going on here? Jesus was not making an accusation against someone else for them sinning. The burden of evidence was actually on the Pharisees in this situation, making the accusation against Jesus for the sin of blasphemy. Do you see the twisting of this completely around that the Pharisees did? Again, this is what happens 
When you start with humanity at the start of the equation and not God. When you start with humanity at the start of the equation, then yeah, all of a sudden, all of God's word is open to your personal interpretation. All of a sudden, people can justify all kinds of sin and even claim that the Bible supports certain kind of sin. All of a sudden, the historical account of creation is manipulated to fit a macro-evolutionary origin of the universe. All of a sudden, the plain and simple statement that God created two biological sexes with corresponding gender roles and identities to only engage in a sexual relationship within his blueprint of marriage and that affirmed time and time again throughout the entirety of scripture can be expanded to include a whole spectrum of genders, identities, orientations, and sexual relationships. All of a sudden, one obscure and inaccurately translated passage from one English translation of the Bible can be ripped out of context and meaning and used to claim the Bible supports abortion. All of a sudden, not trying to understand their contextual wording and meaning, different verses are pointed at and used to say that God was ever okay with the dehumanizing and cruel form of 18th and 19th century U.S. slavery or that any human should be seen as inferior to another for any reason or that God plays favorites with ethnicities and races. All of a sudden, that's wide open when you start with humanity at the start of the equation. In order to understand and live out God's word, we must start with God, and we must start with his plan. But like I said, Jesus was only using the Pharisees' misunderstanding of what the Jewish law actually said to say this. Even using your understanding of the law, I still have the two required witnesses to my authenticity, verses 17 through 18. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. There's your two witnesses right there. Mic drop. Since Jesus had already revealed to the Pharisees that because he's God, he has this eternal relationship with the Father that only he has, he came from heaven and came from access to eternal knowledge and understanding. The only one who had anywhere near the knowledge to corroborate every single audacious thing Jesus claimed about himself could be God. No mere human could verify everything Jesus said about himself, especially this claim of where he ultimately came from. As in verse 14, since he's 100% God, Jesus is the only being who is also 100% human who could be a self-testimony to the truth of what he was saying about himself. So as God, he counts as one of the two required witnesses. The other witness, Jesus claims here, is the one he has spent all of eternity past with. And the one he has this intertwined, perfect, and inextricable connection to and relationship with. If anyone knew Jesus perfectly, and if anyone knew his situation perfectly, and could give perfect witness to everything he said about himself, it was God the Father. 
As pointed out by one biblical scholar, Jesus' description of his relationship with God the Father is not lost on the Pharisees. In fact, he speaks so personally, deeply, and boldly about God the Father that even to the Pharisees at this point, Jesus is really making it seem like he really and very personally knows God the Father. And that's just straight up confusing to them. That confusion leads them to ask Jesus in the beginning part of verse 19. So they were saying to him, where is your father? While not stated in scripture, we can surmise that Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, the one who everyone in Nazareth also knew of and why they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, died at some point before Jesus' crucifixion. That's why Jesus entrusted the earthly needs of his mother to his disciple John while he hung on the cross. Since where we're at in the timeline of Jesus' ministry is only about five to six months before his crucifixion, Jesus' earthly dad may have already died well before this conversation in this morning's passage. So the Pharisees are looking at each other and thinking, this guy is talking about this deep relationship with his father in the present and even future tense. And we all know that Joseph has been dead for a while now. What in the world is this guy talking about? Which leads to the question, you keep talking about your father. Where do you think he is? Pharisees may have even been trying to trap Jesus and try to claim that he had been trying to communicate with the dead, which was strictly forbidden by the actual Jewish law. Whatever the Pharisees' thinking or motivation was, Jesus simply reiterated what he had already told them back in John 5. The other time they challenged his deity and Messiahship, the second part of verse 19, Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. In other words, Jesus is saying, Listen, we've been around this already. If you don't know who I've actually been referring to this whole time when I refer to my father, then you don't actually know him, serve him, or even worship him. As Jesus already told them back in John 5 when he gave them the four witnesses to his deity and messiahship, if the Pharisees truly knew the law, they took so much pride in obeying, if the Pharisees truly read and understood the writings of David and Solomon, if the Pharisees truly understood the, Pharisee, the, the prophecies given by all the prophets before, during, and after the Babylonian exile, they would have known that what God truly desires is not a blind obedience to his law and forcing everyone else to do the same. They would have known and understood that God wanted his people to love him first and foremost, that no one could save themselves from their sin, nor earn their way into heaven based on following the law and the rules, and that they needed a deliverer. They would have seen that every single prophecy pointed to Jesus as that deliverer, and beyond that, God himself. Jesus says to them that not only do they not truly know God the Father 
They don't know him because they refuse to know Jesus. All of these things Jesus has said, both in verse 12, about being the light of life and the light of the world, and all that that entailed, and everything we covered this morning, including this statement, this last statement about the Pharisees not actually knowing God the Father, despite all of their seeming righteousness, all of that should have been enough for the Pharisees to go out and bribe people to start a riot and stone Jesus according to the law and what they could have possibly gotten away with under Roman authority. Jesus isn't beyond fortress walls making these statements. He's not writing a book under a pseudonym. He's not trolling people on Twitter or comment sections on websites behind a weird screen name. He's out in the open, in the general public, by where people dropped off their offerings at the temple. So why didn't that happen? Everything he said should have been enough at this point for the Pharisees to go out and bribe people to start a riot, to all gather, grab Jesus, and stone him. Why didn't that happen? Verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. That's why. Again, it comes back full circle to God the Father's plan and everything happening according to that plan and its timing. It would be the timing for Jesus to die, but not for another six months, and it would be through crucifixion, not by way of stoning, in order to fulfill the prophecies regarding the Messiah's death. Nothing would thwart the timing or events already predetermined in God the Father's plan. Nothing will thwart his plans regarding you. Nothing will thwart his plans regarding your family, our church, and this world. All we need to know is exactly what Jesus said in our passage this morning. Start with God, start with his plan, and start with his word. Fulfill his predetermined plan for you by taking Jesus' death and resurrection for yourself as the substitute for your sin, repenting of that sin, and making him king over the rest of your life. As Jesus said in the last verse this morning, the only way to know God the Father and enter his kingdom here on earth and in heaven is to believe in and know Jesus. Truly know Jesus. That personal relationship with Jesus leads to a full trust in the Father's plan. That he loves you and he works all things out for your ultimate good. That he will take care of our earthly needs. That, he, that he's changing and empowering you through the Holy Spirit. That he's using any and all trials in your life to grow and strengthen you that he's using you to share his gospel message of the hope of salvation in Jesus, that when the number of days he's written out for you comes to an end, you will enter the presence of Jesus 
and that someday Jesus will come back for, will resurrect, and will glorify all of his children, whether alive or dead, will defeat all of the armies of darkness, will have his justice over the entire earth, will set up his earthly kingdom of unprecedented peace and abundance, will throw Satan into the lake of fire for all of eternity, will also send those who rejected him to the lake of fire for eternity, and will usher his children into the new heavens and new earth for all of eternity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these very powerful words of Scripture that teach us so much about who you are and your connection to and relationship with the Father and what that directly means for us as having been saved by the grace of God's predetermined plan and the blood of Jesus that made that plan possible. We thank you for obeying the Father even to the point of death on a cross so that we may, too, share in that inheritance. We don't deserve any of it. We deserve the condemnation that comes with our sin. But Lord, thank you for making it possible for us to be saved for us to be bought with the blood of Jesus, for us to know that your plan contains so much treasure and blessing and inheritance for us now that we've committed our lives to you and surrendered to them, them to you in repentance. I pray that we would take that peace with us each and every day and that we would use it. We would take one more person with us uh, as we're uh, on our way out of this earth uh, to, to be joined to you and be joined uh, with us for all of eternity. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.